Stand by, Rutherford County. The WGNS Action Line continues a search for truth. Right now that time, 8.16. You're tuned to WGNS on this Tuesday morning. And this morning we have a special guest from St. Thomas, and that is Dr. Jason Barnett. How are you this morning? Hello, good morning. First off, tell us a little bit about what you specialize in and some of the areas of practice that you, uh, you know, really enjoy being a part of, because I know you're helping a lot of folks out there. I am a uh, gynecologic oncologist. Uh, what that means is that I take care of women primarily, primarily take care of women with gynecologic cancers like ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, cervical cancer, vulvar cancer. Um, it's a specialization that comes uh, with training after initially being an OBGYN and then going on to subspecialty training where you uh, focus on taking care of women with cancer. How prevalent is ovarian cancer in America, and uh, what does it look like here in Tennessee? Uh, is there a, a higher number of those in Tennessee versus, you know, overall in all of the U.S.? Ovarian cancer is the second most common gynecologic cancer, but overall is still still considered a fairly uncommon cancer. Uh, we have about 20,000 new cancers per year in the United States. Um, and, uh, you know, for reference, you know, breast cancer is you know, more like 200,000 patients. Um, bre- uh, ovarian cancer, you know, I think in, in Tennessee is, is representative uh, as the rest of the U.S., so no, no more common or less common than anywhere else, but, um, but we see, in, you know, enough of it that, um, you know, it's still a, it's the second, it's the most common cause of cancer-related death for, for uh, GYN cancer. So it's still a very important cancer and, and something we see uh, enough of that clearly it's something to take seriously. What are we looking at as far as the age of patients? Is there an average age that you typically see day in and day out? Yeah, the average age of someone who presents with ovarian cancer is in their, their 60s. 63, 64 years old is the average age, but you can see it in younger women, especially when it's associated with genetic condition or hereditary cancer syndromes. And so you, you can see in women, you know, in, in, as young as in their 30s or 40s and, and rarely even younger than that. But most of the time, it's women who are older, postmenopausal, in their 50s and 60s. Again, this morning we're talking with Dr. Jason Barnett with St. Thomas, and he uh, practices both in Murfreesboro and in Nashville, and I believe Clarksville as well, if I'm not mistaken, but several okay. areas there. And ovarian cancer is how destructive? Is it something that's going to lead to other cancers if somebody is diagnosed with having ovarian cancer? It's a very difficult cancer, mainly because it's often present at a, at a later stage. Most ovarian cancers are found at, at stage three cancers, which means that the cancer is already spread to other parts of the body. And, um, and so patients present with advanced cancer and they, and they do require pretty aggressive treatment, which usually involves both surgery and chemotherapy. Um, and so it is, you know, to, to use your words, it is a, it can be a destructive cancer in that it's spread to multiple places. 
How well versed is Ascision St. Thomas, I mean, overall in cancer treatment? Are they seeing a lot of patients with cancer, and how does it compare to other hospitals? Uh, yeah, uh, St. Thomas is, you know, very uh, skilled in cancer treatment. Um, you know, we have our, our cancer center here at, at St. Thomas Midtown, and uh, is a, you know, a regional uh cancer center treatment center and we uh we see uh, a, a lot of cancer uh, we have a multidisciplinary cancer uh treatment team um that includes you know medical oncologists radiation oncologists surgical oncologists we have uh you know we, we see all all different types of cancer you know to include the, the gynecologic cancers and uh, offer state-of-the-art progressive treatment uh, for, for all cancer types. Again, Dr. Jason Barnett with us this morning. It, it, is there something that, you know, women can do, or is there, uh, you know, a, a better diet, a better program to exercise to? I mean, what are things that people can do to decrease their risk of getting ovarian cancer, or is there anything they can do? Well, there are... You know, ovarian cancer is is you know in general any any time that you maintain a healthy lifestyle, balanced diet, those kind of things. You know, they're likely they're they are likely protective. You know, there's not a clear connection between diet or lifestyle and ovarian cancer. You know, tobacco does potentially increase the risk for ovarian cancer. So, like other cancers, not smoking is is important, but um. And then there there are some studies that say maybe a, a, a diet rich in uh, leafy vegetables might be somewhat protective, um, but in general, uh, the the things that would protect from ovarian cancer, um, the the only real strong uh, correlation we've seen is uh, women who have taken birth control pills. Or, or had a tubal ligation in their lifetime, um, there, there is some protective benefit there. Uh, the mechanism behind that is uh, unclear, but, but they think potentially related to um, ovulatory cycles, that kind of thing. So we don't necessarily put women on birth control pills just to protect them from ovarian cancer, though. Um, you know, that, that's a, a risk-benefit kind of uh, analysis, but um, but that is one of the few things that has a, a true protective benefit. Uh, there are women who have genetic hereditary cancer syndromes that put them at high risk for ovarian cancer, and so uh, risk-reducing surgeries uh, are, is another way that we uh, prevent or hopefully prevent ovarian cancer in, in, in those women. So, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the use of tobacco. That can kind of increase, uh, you know, the chances of you getting ovarian cancer. Then you also said something about the birth control pills. That can decrease the chances of you getting ovarian cancer. So those two things are pretty interesting. And at what age, uh, you know, would a person start taking birth control to help not get ovarian cancer? You know, that's a good question. You know, I think... I think most of what we've seen from that is just 
you know, kind of looking looking backwards and seeing that, you know, women who have taken birth control uh, pills have a, there's a protective benefit. In general, we don't recommend, you know, birth control pills just in order to prevent ovarian cancer. You know, it's it's kind of a, a multifactorial. Uh, decision-making, you know, where they might benefit from birth control pills for, for other conditions. Um, there is a small group of women, again, the, the hereditary cancers where, where women have a very high risk for ovarian cancer where, where we might use birth control pills at a pretty young age to offer some protective benefit until they had risk-reducing surgery. But in general, I think that, um, you know, you, you won't find providers recommending birth control pills for the sole purpose of decreasing ovarian cancer risk, just because it's a it's a a low risk cancer in general. But but I think the one you know if women have been on birth control pills in the past, they can take uh, solace in knowing that there there was probably a protective benefit for them. You know I I know women and even teenage girls take birth control for a number of reasons to help clear their face of acne because of problems and then you also have uh, intense periods with extreme migraine headaches so I mean these are all reasons why somebody would start taking birth control at an earlier age right. is there a certain birth control that you know younger generations can take in order to help prevent getting ovarian cancer because there's a shot that I guess women can take every month or so, then there's pills that they can take for birth control. So is there one that's going to be better than the other? No, no, not necessarily. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the type of birth control pill that, you know, any individual would use is, is really going to depend more on provider preference and, and the specific patient and, you know, what they might, benefit most from, but all of them are going to have a similar protective effect. Again, we're talking with Dr. Jason Bennett, and he is with Ascision St. Thomas and uh, a hospital here in Murfreesboro, then also the hospital Midtown in Nashville, I guess St. Thomas Midtown. Um, but you specialize in treating ovarian cancer, and this is something that you're saying is not that common uh, among women, which is a, a positive thing, of course. But if it is not caught early enough, what happens to the patient with ovarian cancer? So, for you know, if if we are able to find it in its early stages, you know, eighty to ninety percent of women will will still be alive at five years. Um, but most cancers are found at a later stage, stage three or stage four, and the the five year survival for late stage ovarian cancer is more in the order of, you know, uh, 20, uh, 10 to 20% um, or up to 30%. And so uh, clearly finding it early is ideal. Unfortunately, we don't have gr a great way to do that yet. And so um, finding at at a later stage, uh, you know, requires pretty intensive treatment in the medical field whatever you hear a doctor talk about a cancer they often say exactly what you were saying you know the the five year you know it five years they you know they can live at least 
five years, ten years, whatever, the tenure mark. What What is, I guess, why is it talked about in such a way to say, well, looks like they can make it to the five-year mark or ten-year mark. I mean, where do these numbers come from? Yeah, I think that's really a, a historical benchmark overall. I mean, in general, it's thought that if you make it, if, if, if you make it to a five-year mark, now, now this doesn't really hold true for a lot of cancers, um, specifically ovarian or breast cancer, but if, 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 you, if you're alive at five years, a lot of, for a lot of cancers, or at least historically, um, it was, you know, you were believed to be cured from the cancer. And we don't really talk in that kind of terminology in general at the beginning. We don't say, well, you're cured or not. We, we talk more about your risk of it coming back or not. It's, it's just a little more um, appropriate to talk about it that way. But so the five-year mark was kind of considered a magic mark, you know, a place to get to. Now, the reality is, as we've learned more about cancer and, and, and become better at treating cancer long-term, um, there are cancer types where patients might live five years but, but not be cured from their cancer, but we're still treating them, and, and even alive at 10 years and still treating them and, and treating it more like a chronic medical condition. And so uh, I think that's where it came from historically, um, but but just but I but I I think you can know now that just getting to the five year mark doesn't necessarily mean you're cured from the cancer, but that that's kind of how it was thought of historically. Again, we're talking with Dr. Jason Barnett with St. Thomas, and we're talking about ovarian cancer and how that impacts those who. Uh, sounds like are usually over 60, what you were saying earlier as far as the patient's age. Uh, but again, this impacts a lot of folks, even though it's not extremely common. It still impacts a lot of people every year when you look at the numbers all across the U.S. And we'll talk more about that right after we take a break. Again, Dr. Jason Barnett on the uh, air with us this morning. And, and by the way, before we head to this break, how can someone get a hold of you as far as making an appointment if they want to set up a time to meet with you, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, most of our patients that we see are, are going to be referred to us by you know, either their OBGYN or their primary care doctor who, who they've seen and, and have some sort of either diagnosis of cancer already or they have um, they have something that they are worried might be a cancer. Um, they're always welcome to, to call us at our, our office as well um, and and potentially see us as a self-referral. But usually, usually, 90% of the time, they're coming from their primary care doctor or OBGYN. I guess it's good to know the names of different doctors in the area and to know what their practice, what what area they practice in uh, because if you are diagnosed with a cancer by your primary care doctor it's good to say you know hey I would like to see you know Dr. Jason Barnett or, or whoever it may be when they're making that referral because right. you, you do have a voice patients do have a voice where they can say you know I want to see so-and-so when that referral is made correct 
Again, Dr. Jason Barnett with us, and we're going to take a short break, and we will be right back in just a few minutes. So make sure you stay with us. Time right now, 8.32. You're tuned to WGNS on this Tuesday morning, today the 14th of September already. Wow. Again, time right now, 8.32. More news and information coming up. The Action Line on FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. We're Rutherford County's place to talk. Hi, this is Dan Mitchell at Music World and Drummer's Den, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Come on over to Music World and Drummer's Den for lessons on any instrument with strings, keys, or drums. We also have a full line of live sound, uh, amplification, PA systems, lights, everything you need to play your local venues. We are your local music store. You need to come see us. Music World and Drummer's Den, 2762 South Church Street, across from Indian Hills Golf Course. Hi, this is Peter Demas with Demas's Family Restaurants. In December, Demas's will be here for 32 years. My parents started this restaurant they wanted a place that was affordable, that people can come and be able to celebrate their special occasions or be with their family. And we have strived to keep things the same as what they have created it. We encourage you to come and try Demas's Restaurant at 1115 Northwest Broad Street. That's Demas's Restaurants. It's so important that we recognize our veterans, shake their hands and say how proud we are of the service that they have given to our country and that we thank them for that. I am Becky Bookner and we salute our veterans. WGNS proudly salutes and remembers our U.S. veterans who have served our country. In this salute, we talk to a veteran who fought in the Vietnam War. We're talking with Russell Ashton. When did you serve in the military? What branch and all of that? United States Army. I went in in 1967, and I got out in November of 1969. And my last service was over in Vietnam. I'm just uh, glad to be here. What was it like when you first went in? I was just a little country boy, just got out of high school, and your uncle called me and said, get on a Greyhound bus and go to Nashville, you know? I mean, I was frightened. I guess uh, that might be good for some people, that, that might get them closer to God to go to war. Were you in the thick of everything? I was with the 173rd Airborne Brigade. I guess you could say we were doing our share. I made 17 jumps out of the airplanes and stuff. Of course, those old TTN shoots that we had back then, buddy, you just crashed and burned. That's all it was. I mean, you hit the ground. A lot of times I think that could be a lot of my hearing problem because you jump out of a plane that's got the props or I jumped out of the C-141s. That's the jet. That's a lot of noise just to walk in. Too. Was that scary jumping out of those planes? Uh, 18 years old, what do you call it? Five foot ten and bulletproof. WGNS proudly salutes and remembers our U.S. veterans who have served our country. Restoration One of Middle Tennessee. A team of experts and immediate responders who help homeowners after disaster strikes. After disaster strikes. Fire, water, or storm damage. We can help you get your life back to normal quickly. Restoration One Middle Tennessee.com. Locally and veteran owned. 
CBS News Brief. Californians are voting today on whether Governor Gavin Newsom should keep his job. CBS's Major Garrett says Newsom's team is hopeful. They said there is no scenario, their words, no scenario in which the governor loses this recall election. That, they said, was based on public polls, their own internal polls, and what they described as heavy early Democratic turnout. President Biden stumped for Newsom in Long Beach last night. Nicholas has been downgraded to a tropical storm, but not before slamming the Texas coast as a hurricane. CBS's Janet Chamlian is near Houston. Here in Kima and throughout southeast Texas, officials are asking people just to stay put right now, to buckle down, do not go outside. Amazon's trying to entice people to sign up for work by offering $18 an hour to new hires. CBS's Vicki Barker. Amazon plans to hire another 125,000 warehouse and transportation workers to help run 100 new logistics facilities launching this month. CBS News Brief. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. You can make a meaningful difference in 2021. KidLink Community Services is currently seeking foster parents in your area. KidLink provides free training and certification. Contact KidLink today at 877-714-1313 or KidLinkServices.com. Old friends, new name, better together. As First National Bank of Murfreesboro transforms into Capstar Bank, our focus is on you. We're entering a new generation of banking in Rutherford County but will always remain a community bank with local people you trust and uniquely exceptional service you deserve. We're at 2230 Mercury Boulevard, capstar.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. We're News Radio WGNS 100.5, 101.9, 1450. Online and on your phone at WGNS the Action Line on FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. We're Rutherford County's place to talk. Time right now, 837. You're tuned to WGNS on this Tuesday morning, again, the 14th of September. And we have, as a guest this morning, Dr. Jason Barnett with St. Thomas, and he practices in both Nashville at Midtown and St. Thomas Rutherford right here in Murfreesboro. And one of the topics that we were going to cover this morning, the standard treatment for ovarian cancer. So after the diagnosis, or maybe we should start with the diagnosis first, when that diagnosis is made, what happens next? So when a patient is diagnosed, I mean, typically the way it works is, you know, a, a patient is seen by their primary care doctor or in the emergency room or their OBGYN, and they're found to have uh, findings on some sort of imaging study, a CAT scan or ultrasound or something like that, um, indicators of, of, of a potential cancer. So not, not always 100% clear whether there's a cancer there or not, um, a pelvic mass, or maybe there is on CAT scan really clear evidence of, you know, cancer would spread to other regions, but a pelvic mass that makes you think maybe that's where it started. And so there's a lot of different ways where you end up uh, seeing me, uh, you know, whether it's through the emergency room or primary care doctor or, or uh, OBGYN. Um, and the diagnosis uh, requires a, a biopsy of some sort. Sometimes that biopsy is done you know, by uh, the radiologist who gets a biopsy of the mass, or, or sometimes we go straight to surgery because it, 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 it looks like that would be the best approach. Um, 
the treatment for ovarian cancer involves both surgery and chemotherapy uh, usually. If it's very early stage, there's a very small percentage of patients that don't need chemotherapy. But 90% of all stages, stage one through four, um, need chemotherapy in addition to surgery. And so um, they either have surgery at the beginning uh, where we try to remove all the cancer that we can. That can be a really uh, big surgery. We call the bulking surgery. And what that means is that we're, we're removing any cancer that we can see or feel throughout the abdominal cavity. And that can involve uh, removing, you know, the ovaries where the cancer started and a hysterectomy. Um, it, but it also often involves uh, removal of portions of the intestine or colon, maybe uh, the spleen or uh, the fatty apron that's overlying the abdomen called the omentum. Sometimes it even means moving part of the diaphragm. So it's a, a pretty aggressive operation. And following the operation, you get chemotherapy. Now, sometimes we give you chemotherapy at the front and do surgery in the middle. So you can see it's it's not a uh, cookie-cutter um, treatment plan, but it's it's really tailored to the patient and their presentation. With ovarian cancer, are there things that we can look out for, symptoms of, uh, I don't know, the inability to have a regular bowel movement or problems urinating or stomach pain or abdomen pain? Are there anything, is there anything at all that we can look out for as far as uh, women who are concerned about getting ovarian cancer? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what we've, you know, ovarian cancer has this, uh, I, I remember several years ago, the slogan was, it's the disease that whispers. Um, and what, what, the, what that means is that there are probably very uh, small indicators of that, that ovarian cancer is present. The problem with a lot of the, uh, those indicators is they're, they're not very specific. They, they could be the signs of, of, of a lot of different things, and, and, or it could just be, you know, normal life, too, as we all have different aches and pains and cramps and those kind of things, GI disturbances. And so, but you're correct. Um, when they look back, uh, you know, a lot of studies that have, have looked at this have shown that there are signs that... Um, uh, of ovarian cancer early, like uh, abdominal bloating, GI disturbances, urinary frequency, abdo- abdominal or pelvic pain, you know, are the are the primary ones that um, that have been looked at and present when they look back at patients and and they use little. I mean, there's there's no clear way to to quantify that. There have been some studies that show that it if women are having some of those symptoms 12 times or more a month, that, that could be an indicator. But, but, if we're, but if you take all comers, you know, even among women who have those symptoms, you know, most of them are not going to have ovarian cancer, but most of them have had those symptoms if they eventually are diagnosed with ovarian cancer, if that makes sense. Now, with those symptoms that you talked about, how long of a period of time could some women present these issues before actual, be- well, I guess before actually being diagnosed with ovarian cancer? I mean, could this go on for a couple of years, or is ovarian cancer a faster-acting cancer, a more aggressive cancer? 
Yeah, it's probably mo- more over the previous three three months to a year. Um, you know, within the year, it's not. It's 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 definitely most ovarian cancers are not thought to be something that have have been um, evolving over several years, but probably over the the prior year months to years. Now, most doctors recommend an annual physical, an annual doctor's visit to just kind of oversee everything to see how everything's going. How important is it to have those annual visits? And should we at some point, as women age, should they start having appointments for checkups every six months or should they keep every year? That's another great question. You know, um, you know, our major colleges and and bodies who make recommendations about this do say that women should still have a, a yearly pelvic exam um, as part of their their well women evaluation, and that that isn't you know one one uh, confusing point. You know, sometimes women think that a Pap smear is potentially screening them for all all cancers of the gynecologic tract, and so. You know, they'll often say, but I had a normal pap smear um, even after they've had their ovarian cancer diagnosis. And and so ovarian cancer and pap smears have nothing to do with each other. But the pelvic exam itself um, is an opportunity for a provider to to see if the the ovaries are enlarged or not. However, we're notoriously not going to find ovarian cancers that way. But it's at least a touch point yearly with a woman to evaluate overall symptoms and to perform an examination. What what we have found, unfortunately, is that so far we don't have a great screening test for ovarian cancer. It's a a quiet cancer that that develops, you know, with very nonspecific symptoms. So it's not unusual, um, you know, you could have a, even if we were to see you every six months, we wouldn't necessarily find it any earlier. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, all the screening studies that have been performed where, where women are getting blood tests or ultrasounds every six months or every year, even that doesn't necessarily find ovarian cancer any earlier. So that's, that's an active area of research where, where they're really looking to see if there are ways to find uh, ovarian cancer at an earlier stage or or even better would be to find it at a precursor stage, which we have yet to be able to do. Again, with us this morning, Dr. Jason Barnett, and he practices in both Nashville and at St. Thomas Rutherford here in Murfreesboro. And ovarian cancer is something that you specialize in and you have for how many years now? So I have uh, been practicing uh, gynecologic oncology out of training for 11 years now. And, um, yeah, I guess it's been 11 years. You know, I found it interesting that one of your special interests is the minimally invasive procedures and then also the robotic surgical procedures. I mean, that's that's interesting, robotic procedures. What does that mean in the surgery room? I mean, what what's going on there with the robotic procedures? So robotic surgery is um, another way of doing what it you know, it's commonly called laparoscopic surgery. You know, as you probably know and your listeners know, laparoscopic surgery is where we make little small incisions, you know, less than a, a centimeter, and we put in 
instruments and look at a camera so that we can see inside the abdomen um, uh, by using small little incisions and, and, and small instruments. Robotic surgery is doing the very same thing, so we still put all the instruments in and, and uh, make those small incisions, and, and then, we attack, then we connect it to a, what, what's called the robot, and, uh, and then we sit in a console right next to the patient, and we control those instruments you know, with the console instead of, uh, you know, manually with our hands right next to the patient. And what it allows us to do is uh, more complex movements and procedures um, that are limited by traditional laparoscopy, but um, enhanced with the robotic platform. It really has, uh, you know, revolutionized what we can do through minimally invasive techniques and which allows... uh, patients to recover quicker and allows, um, you know, a decreased hospitalization today. They, they can get to their treatment sooner and they have lower risks of things like infection and things that, that come with the larger surgeries. All right. Uh, you know, the, it's interesting how technology plays such an important role in surgical procedures these days. And, you know, looking back 30 years, even 20 years, I don't think folks would ever imagine how technologically advanced everything would be these days i mean you have probably even seen massive changes over the years that you've been practicing no correct i i uh when i was a i started my medical training in uh, 1998 and um i think the robotic platform may have really started in the early 2000s maybe 2005 or so so and, and then just to watch the, the adoption of that um, platform uh, from from 2005 till now is has been a pretty strong curve. Um, but yeah, we're doing a lot of things that I mean it, it has completely changed the landscape of, of surgery for sure. Again, Dr. Jason Barnett with us this morning. Now, outside of the practice, you enjoy a lot of things that. Uh, I guess, are, are healthy aspects of life, such as being outdoors and running and, and things like that, then also participating in church activities and, and being involved with your community. And that I think that's an important role in, in staying healthy. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we've got to, we've got to uh, keep moving. We've got to stay engaged with people. You know, I think COVID highlights just how important it is to have strong, vibrant relationships with one another, to be a part of your community, you know, to, to, to take care of your, your body physically and emotionally and spiritually. Um, all of those are, are really important components of holistic living. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, whether, and then, and then if you, especially if, if, if you are presented with, you know, a difficult uh, cancer diagnosis and you know all the more important that you have those those connections in 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 the community with your your church family or your 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 friends or your uh you know community um and then just the overall help to go into a diagnosis like that so there's you know as you know just multiple reasons to to have have a, a holistic balanced lifestyle you know, staying emotionally fit is just as important as staying physically fit, I think, because, as, as we all know, 
stress and uh, depression that plays a huge role in the human body I mean it, it can mimic so many problems it can mimic symptoms of cancer in some ways if you feel overly tired daily you know if you're if your body is hurting body aches stuff like that I, I mean depression is very real and that's something that we need to kind of fight off by being involved in the community by talking to friends and family I mean so these are all important things that we all need to focus on to stay healthy no absolutely I think that um, you know healthy relationships are, are probably one of the best indicators of, of just emotional health you know and, and isolation makes things you know more difficult and as and to your point you know even when you have a, a diagnosis of cancer you know your emotional health is is a key component of your you know how you make the the journey of treatment you know how, how you cope with the difficulties of surgery and chemotherapy and all the things that you you have to um, get through uh, your emotional health goes a long ways, and we see that, you know, patients that, you know, have positive emotional health, um, you know, it, it's a very different looking, you know, picture uh, in, in the way that they uh, engage their treatment. And so, you know, I think the, the prep work for that is now, you know, before the diagnosis and, and the way that we, we engage with, you know, uh, our emotional health. Again, we're talking with Dr. Jason Barnett this morning with St. Thomas. And, uh, you know, if anybody has signs or symptoms that you've talked about this morning, the first step I would imagine would be to go to your regular care doctor and, you know, the, the regular practitioner and just say, hey, I'm having these problems. What do we do about it and where to go next? And, and I know you mentioned some of the tests that can be done in order to detect ovarian cancer. But what is probably the first thing that will happen if they say, I think I may have these symptoms, what do we do? Uh, so I think you're right. You're going to see your, you know, primary care doctor. And that might be an OBGYN for some women um, or, or your family doctor. And, uh, and depending on the, you know, you'll have to trust your doctor to, to do a physical exam and, and, and gather uh, all the symptoms and history uh, to help make a, a decision about further workup. Uh, sometimes you have to advocate for yourself too, though. And, and you know, usually for, for specifically for ovarian cancer, the place that most people would start in um, evaluation is, is some sort of pelvic ultrasound to look at the ovaries and see if they're enlarged or, or look abnormal. Sometimes the symptoms might war warrant, you know, a CT scan of the abdomen. Oftentimes, that would be the next step if, if an ultrasound either showed a mass and you wanted to get a better look, or if, uh, or if, or if the ultrasound wasn't conclusive. But, but you know, sometimes it takes a little bit to get to the, that place, and your your doctor is going to know whether or not that that should be done or not. But sometimes you got to advocate for yourself. And, and push for, for tests like an ultrasound or imaging. But that would be the next test after a physical exam um, if, you're, if you were specifically worried about ovarian cancer. I, I guess the bottom line is you have to know your body and you have to 
you know, do something about it if you're starting to feel that something's wrong. I mean, you have to make that appointment in order to go to your regular doctor to figure out what's going on and then take the next steps that you need to take. But bottom line, you need to know your body. And if something's going on, get to the doctor. I, I guess that's the most important thing. No, that's right. You've got it right. Again with us this morning, Dr. Jason Barnett with St. Thomas Rutherford and also practicing at St. Thomas Midtown in Nashville. We appreciate you joining us this morning, and is there anything in closing that you wanted to say about all this? No, I mean, this is a one of those cancers that we hear about. Uh, we don't, you know, a lot of people don't know much about it. Um, I'm really grateful to have, you know, this, this, this time to highlight ovarian cancer during ovarian ovarian cancer awareness month um and uh you know we're happy to to serve this community in this way and um i appreciate your time sounds good again dr jason barnett and again thank you for joining us this morning time right now 856 you're tuned to wgns and we have more news more information coming up in just a little while including a look at local news and news from around the country and also around the world with CBS. All coming your way next right here on WGNS, your good neighbor station since 1947. Right now, I'll check on that traffic. Good morning. Still quite a bit of traffic volume, but it's moving on 24 through the Hickory Hollow area as you continue towards Nashville. Lots of radar out here this morning up and down 840. Give yourself extra time. Oktoberfest and Over Gatlinburg, September 24th through October 31st. Log on to OverGatlinburg.com. I'm Commander Chuck with your on-time traffic. Thanks a lot, Chuck. Time right now, 8.57. Well, one of the news stories we are working on for you this morning, volunteers from St. Mark's United Methodist Church right here in Murfreesboro are headed to Louisiana today to help those impacted by Hurricane Ida. Paul Givens told WGNS News that volunteers from Murfreesboro will be clearing debris from homes, and to aid in that, crews will be carrying with them cut trees, chainsaws the after the hurricane Ida. So they'll be carrying chainsaws to cut trees off of houses. The destruction caused by the hurricane wreaked havoc on multiple areas, destroying homes and businesses. Sadly, a theft occurred in Murfreesboro just prior to volunteers leaving to help the impacted area. That theft meant that volunteers from St. Mark's will be traveling to Louisiana with fewer tools than they had originally planned to take. We loaded our chainsaws last night in a covered truck. It's at a canvas cover. And uh, we showed up at about 5.30 this morning and somebody had cut in through the canvas cover and had stolen all the chainsaws that we loaded yesterday. Uh, Givens told us that eight chainsaws were stolen, but that won't prevent the crew from St. Mark's making that trek to the Gulf. We borrowed four chainsaws and we're going anyway. Again, they borrowed four chainsaws and they're headed that way now. Hurricane Ida, by the way, was an intensely destructive Category 4 hurricane that impacted Louisiana, with tens of thousands still being without power today. If you have information on the theft from St. Mark's United Methodist Church on North Rutherford Boulevard in Murfreesboro, or if you hear about someone trying to sell multiple chainsaws, definitely call the Murfreesboro Police Department's Criminal Investigations Unit to let them know about it. Their number, 615-893-2717. Again, 
2717.